Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show with the host who's the only person to ever date all of Charlie's Angels. Oops, long show. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am Brian Levine, coming to you way pre-recorded because of all my travels. We've talked about that in the past, and nobody cares anymore. Uh, But on this week's episode in uh, Pipe Parts, I have a collection review. Yep, got a collection review sent in by one of you, the show listeners, so you'll have to hear that. Uh, my guest is uh, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit, who is a poet, a musician, and a uh, just an incredible guy. And I got to sit down and talk to him, and you get to hear it. Uh, this, I mean, this is one of those guys that has done everything. And then uh, music, mailbag, and rant, all that on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And don't forget, go over to PipesMagazine.com and go to the forums and you can find uh, the uh, Ken Barnes folder of uh, his posts and PDF files and uh, learn, you know, just, uh, again, just a ton of information there. Uh, JDRF Auctions, I'm starting to beg and plead for all of you to send in stuff because we will get those going probably, my guess would be uh, June would be probably the best time i'll check with steve fallon but again if you have any items that you'd like to donate email me brian b-r-i-a-n at pipesmagazine.com and 100 percent of the proceeds go directly to juvenile diabetes research and uh, finding a cure for finding a cure and better treatments for those that are dealing with type 1 diabetes like my daughter so much appreciate it and again start gathering up those items and uh, email them in to me All right, let's get the show rolling so everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And for Pipe Parts, it's a pipe collection review. And it's important that I tell you this uh, this collector's name because his name is Steve Davenport. And the reason I tell you that that's important is because part of his collection, which is truly a collection in the, uh, in the Alan Schwartz term of collection, uh, his collection is broken up into two parts one part is um called uh, their pipes called lord davenport and i couldn't find my research but if i remember right uh, the lord davenport pipes were made for a chain of stores or a group of uh, tobacco shops that might have been davenport tobacco shops or something like that but anyway these are essentially house pipes and they're of the same quality as my uh Walt Disney World pipes, so you got some good, some bad. He sent pictures of everything, and I think he'd agree with me that some of them are better than others. But what uh, what Steve is doing here, because of his last name, is he's clean, he's getting them, and he's doing a magnificent job of cleaning them up. I mean, these pipes look way better than my uh, than my Disney pipe collection. Uh, right now, I believe he's over. Uh, almost up to 30 of them in different shapes and sizes and colors and he's cleaning them up and he's smoking them and he's enjoying them so it's fun to see that he's found something that's in his niche has the same name on it i don't think his wife is calling him lord davenport around the house but you know if he's smoking a lord davenport pipe well he probably should be a lord davenport 
then the other part of his collection is uh, some factory pipes and some artisan pipes and a good selection of some Morgan Bones pipes. Uh, the Morgan Bones, he's got them in different shapes, including a, uh, <laughs> a Morgan Meerschaum uh, and a Weeby radiator with a Bones bowl on it. Uh, so he's got a couple of, you know, got a couple of cool ones. And what I like with the Morgan bones, again, these are, these are not expensive pipes, but they color up great. They smoke really well. They come in different kinds of, you know, different levels of, of, uh, extra funkiness. And then he's got the Meerschaum to go with it. So these are probably more in his, um, workhorse pipe range would be my guess. Uh, but again, he's got two, he's got about, uh, I'm counting them right now as we're talking. Uh, he's got about 20 total in the, uh, in the Morgan Bones section. So again, good quality smokers, good reliable pipes. Uh, and then his uh, artisan pipes and handmaids uh, you know, and, a, uh, and a tamper. And I know that uh, Steve is working in wood, so I'm wondering if he's going to start making himself a pipe. <laughs> uh, but he's got stuff like an, uh, you know, like an Eltang Basic and stuff from Scott uh, from Scott's pipes. So he's got some top quality stuff, you know, some some higher end handmaids that are, uh, you know, and some moderate price stuff. And he's got different shapes and sizes. So I really can't, you know, I really can't say or recommend anything for for Steve. He's got something that he's collecting in the Davenport's, something that he's actively searching for more. And something that he's trying to find individual pieces. And I know, uh, yeah, again, I wish I could find the research that I found on the Davenport pipes. But, yeah, I think at one point they were being wholesaled out in, uh, in a couple of states. So, again, he's looking for them. And, again, he's looking for pipes that are good examples and don't really duplicate what he's already got. So he's curating a selection of that and then the rest of his selection is you know good quality smokers uh you know from factory to a, a couple of artists and handmaids and i would be willing to bet that those morgan bones get most of the smoking time uh, but this is the uh, i mean this is the beautiful part of being a, of being involved in pipe collecting is that you know i'm sure he gets as happy as he, you know, as happy as find when he finds a new Lord Davenport for his collection is when he gets one of the, uh, when he gets an artisan or a handmade pipe, uh, that fits his collection. It does look like he, uh, on the, on the smoking pipe side of it, you know, the pipes that he probably smokes more often, it looks like he leans more towards a slight bent. Uh, so maybe I would suggest to him to add, you know, just a few more straight pipes, but yeah, that could be all personal preference anyway. And, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do with, you know, if I had his selection, I'm sure he's got plenty of pipes and he's got different sizes and shapes. I'd be interested to hear how the, uh, how the Morgan bones works on the, uh, on the radiator versus how it works on the, uh, you know, as a regular bones pipe. Cause that would be a great way to compare the, uh, the radiator system to, uh, you know, to what would be a traditional straight pipe. Uh, and then the Meerschaum, yeah, that's just a great way to deviate off of, a, off of, it's a great way to deviate the, or change the tobacco taste of what you're smoking because that Meerschaum is going to give you a little bit more variety versus the, uh, versus what the briars are going to do. Um, and, uh, and again, if you have your collection and want to send it in to me, just email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, the only thing Steve doesn't have in here that is probably something that he might want to think about getting is a, uh, uh, is a, uh, Morta pipe just to see how Morta changes the tobaccos. But again, just a, just a great balance collection, nothing really overly, you know, nothing overly expensive in it, but I'm sure it's a lot of fun for him. And if you have a Davenport pipe that uh, you know that you think might uh, might that Steve might need, you know, I'll help facilitate it. So, all right, again, that's uh, Steve Davenport's collection of uh, Davenport pipes. And in just a moment, my discussion with Malcolm Geit. This is Internet Radio. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal. We know pipe smoking is a personal journey. That's why our small team of blending and production experts take a personal approach in every step, preparing tobacco products just for you. We source top quality leaf through the personal connections we've made around the world, hand blend that leaf, and carefully package each tin. Each product, from special releases like our small batch line to our most popular mixtures like Autumn Evening, are made right here in South Carolina by professionals dedicated to providing the finest of smoking experiences. Lighting up a pipe is an exploration through evolving flavors, thoughts, memories, and even dreams. From our hands to yours, Cornell & Deal tobaccos are your passport for that voyage, provided by people who, like you, value the journey. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining me is, uh, when I talk about accomplished men, uh, this is it. Uh, my guest is the poet, musician, philosopher, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Gite, who is also a ardent pipe smoker. So welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to join you. I, uh, I feel a natural kinship with other pipe smokers. You know, we're a beleaguered few. We must hang on, hang out together. So I'm <laughs> so glad there are magazines like yours, uh, keeping the flame alive as it were. Yeah. And I was excited to, so I, so I, you came to my attention by a guest of the show or by a regular listener of the show. And I was, I said, okay, I'll look and see what it is. And then I started down a very, very long rabbit hole of all your accomplishments, your books, your poetry, your music. And it is so long that I can't even mention it here. Uh, I will tell everybody, Malcolm Gite, M-A-L-C-O-M-G-U-I-T-E, WordPress.com is the home hub of C-O-L-M. C-O-L-M, yeah. And that's where to begin. But for for us right now, um, where where were you born and where did you grow up? Okay, so uh, an unusual answer to that question. Yeah. I was born in Nigeria and uh, in the town of Ibadan, uh, not far from Lagos, among the, uh, where the Yoruba people of Nigeria live. My dad was actually a lecturer at the university in Ibadan. Uh, so I was born out there in 57. So in fact, although everybody calls me Malcolm, it's my middle name. My first name is Ayodeji, which is a Yoruba, traditional Yoruba tribal name. Ayo means joy, and Deji means again. So it's the second joy or joy again. And it's a traditional name for a second child, which I am. I have an older sister. Uh, so I have very happy memories of that. I, my first seven years were in Nigeria. And then the next three, till I was just before I was 10, we were in was Zimbabwe as it is now, Rhodesia as it was mm -hmm. then. And after that, we left Africa. But in those 10 years, apart from, you know, all the amazing sights and sounds that informed my childhood of, of life in the tropics, I, I uh, we used to go back to, my dad was an Englishman, a Yorkshireman, my mother's Scottish, and um, we used to go back. He had sort of like long leave, the long vacation in the in the academic year. And he didn't want me to lose touch with, you know, my own sort of British heritage and so on. So we would go back every year. But my mum wasn't keen on flying. So my dad flew and sort of set up the household for the few months we'd be away. And uh, basically my mum and my sister and I used to go by sea. Oh. And we used to go on these one, not just like liners or whatever, but like mm -hmm. cargo vessels that would maybe also take a dozen passengers or something like that. So, and I loved that. I've always loved the sea and ships and sailing and boats. And I think that's kind of in my blood from, uh, from those childhood oh. days. So you were on, a, you'd be on the, on these cargo vessels as passengers with all these crusty old seamen that have seen oh, absolutely, it all. Absolutely. And as you can imagine, there was a bit of pipe smoking going on yeah. there and indeed tobacco chewing and spitting, as I seem to remember. And naturally <laughs> as a small boy, I was in awe of these grizzled old sailors. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, I seem to become something of a grizzled old sailor myself. In fact, um, 
one of my books, uh, last in fact, the, the sort of biggest book I've written is a book called um, Mariner, A Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And it's it's about Coleridge's magnificent poem, The Ancient Mariner, and it's a sort of fresh reading of it. But it also uses the the wonderful tall tale of that poem to kind of shape the way I tell the story of Coleridge's life. But my mum used to recite that poem to me when I was really little. Like, she didn't sit down and sit me in a corner and go like, okay, this is poetry, this is good for you, or anything like that. It was just naturally flowing from her. So I remember where I was, there was that magic moment after all the, when the tugboats have finally brought the boat out and the last horses are thrown away and you're clear of the harbour and you, you know you're on your voyage now and it's very yeah. exciting. And you'd see the wake of the boat spreading out behind you. My mother used to sort of look, stand there with me on the after deck, look out and say, the fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. And that would set us up for the voyage. And of course, that's ah. a bit of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so was that, was, was, were those trips, were those the first, was that the, the beginning of your interest in pipe smoking? Oh, well, I mean, I was only a little boy, you'll understand. Yeah. yeah. So it was simply that I noticed the uh, the old sailors. There was a chap, actually, my mother used to tell this story that um, I was, you know, like a little kid, a lot of little kids, slightly fussy eater, and I used to find it quite difficult to sort of chew the meat sometimes and you finish it, you know. And I, my parents wouldn't let me, you know, get the next course or leave the, leave the table until I'd finished what was on my plate. So good old-fashioned myself. <laughs> and one time... When I was still quite little, I was, you know, rather desperately chewing away on the last bits and they'd finished. And then one of my father's guests got out a pipe and was puffing away on it and doing this. And I was watching him putting it into his mouth and taking it out and putting it into his mouth while I was trying to do. And apparently I looked at him very sym sympathetically and said, what's the matter, sir? Can't you chew it either? <laughs> <laughs> out of out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> yeah. So when did when did you begin pipe smoking? Well, that wasn't until uh, I was in my late teens, early twenties. I was about I was about eighteen or nineteen, I think. I mean, like a lot of kids, you know, I'd had my little go at you know illicitly smoking cigarettes behind the bike shed, sort of thing. But I didn't particularly get on with them. And then what happened was that um, I read. Uh, I read The Lord of the Rings. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. yeah you no, know, looking back then. I read yeah. The Lord of the Rings when I was about 17. And, uh, of course, I loved all the pipe smoking and that and Gandalf and Bilbo sitting out, you know, and Gandalf blowing smoke rings and everything. So I thought, you know, I'll get a pipe. And I did it. When I was in Ireland, we have, I did what we call here a gap year, a gap between school and university. I'd won a scholarship up to Cambridge, but I... Between the time I won the scholarship, which was in which was in November or December, I wouldn't be going up to Cambridge till the following October. So I, I had some time. I went home. By that time, my folks were living in Canada. I went home and did a bit of work to earn some money. And then about April, I went back to England and uh, decided that what I'd like to do is have a long visit to Ireland. And I so just me and a backpack, you know, I went and walked around Ireland. And um, I bought a my first pipe in Ireland, which I've still got somewhere, which is a little Peterson yeah. system pipe, you know, and I uh, bought some, I think it was uh, these wonderful names they had in those days. I think it was like three nuns, you know, ready, ah. run. That's pretty blow your head off tobacco, actually. So I started smoking a pipe in Ireland. Uh, I guess, yeah, <coughs> 19 I was then, yeah, maybe 18 or 19. And, um, and that was a great companion for a long solo walk, you know, um, end of the day's walking. I used to kind of ask in farm farmyards or ask the farmer, you know, can I roll my sleeping bag out in your barn? You know, can I do some chores around the farm or whatever? And, you know, and he'd say, well, don't smoke in the barn if there's hay there, but there's a great rock you can sit out in here or whatever. And I'd <laughs> sit and smoke a meditative pipe in the evening, you know, watch the sun go down and, uh, or write poems it was great <laughs> and then uh, the next part of your life is when did you when did you find your calling to the clergy well that's a thing because at that time i was when i was in ireland um i mean i was brought up in a christian household you know and i'm looking back i'm you know i'm glad of that but i did the classic thing that 
teenagers do in their stormy youth and I rejected it all and thought oh it's fairy tale and it's not yeah so I spent a certain amount of time in my mid to late teens trying to be a hardcore atheist but of course it never quite took partly because of poetry this deep love of poetry poetry is so mysterious it just opens up things you know one kind of beauty shimmers through another kind of beauty and I was trying to maintain that you know, that we have no soul and that it's just a bunch of unwinding enzymes and selfish genes and chemical reactions in the brain and that kind of thing. And really, I felt, I don't think that covers the basis, you know, whatever else is going on when you read a great poem, you know, smoking your pipe, it's not just a, it's not just chemistry. It is chemistry, but it's a lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's an overplusness. So by the time I came up to Cambridge at the end of that, that, that trip, I was a kind of agnostic and probably poetry was my religion. But during the course of my time at Cambridge, I, I studied English literature and I particularly specialized in medieval and Renaissance literature, which of course is all Christian. And to understand it, I had to read a lot of the Bible and the prayer book and theology behind it and just began to make a lot of sense to me. So um, so during the course, but I was I was probably the kid that they would have thought was ever least likely to become a priest. I mean, I, I had, you know, sort of hair right down my back, you know, and was <laughs> listening to the Grateful Dead and all that kind of thing. But basically, um, I became a Christian in my second year at university. Uh, and I, I originally thought I'll be an academic or I'll be a teacher. But while I was being a school teacher in the early 80s, mid 80s, I, um, I was also working on a part-time PhD and I studied um, uh, John Donne, the great English poet, who's also, as it happened to be, one of the great preachers of his day. He's a great love poet, great erotic poet, but also a great, you know, religious poet. And those two sides of his life were, you know, both working and going and, and mutually mutually enhancing each other, I think. So um, Dunn was a priest. Dunn actually became Dean of St. Paul's in London. So that kind of made me think that somebody I loved and somebody like me, my, I couldn't see any priests in the present day who looked or felt or sounded remotely <laughs> like I did. But John Dunn was there. And then, of course, I discovered George Herbert, who's perhaps the supreme priest poet of the of the English tradition and he was really helpful to me so somewhere in the course of working on that PhD I began to wonder whether God was calling me to the priesthood and I, in the end I felt he was so it was great it wasn't I mean it took me a while to get my mind around it but yeah. basically having come up to Cambridge in 77 to study English literature I ended up going back to Cambridge in 88 to do theology and trained for the priesthood and I was ordained in um, I was ordained I was ordained deacon in 1990 and priest in 91 and that was a really you know for a while actually I kind of almost put the poetry aside because it was so absorbing you know to be a priest and a pastor and everything but eventually the poetry came back in and I began to realize that there was tremendous obviously tremendous poetry in the bible but also poetry in the liturgy that we did and I began to see that for me being a priest and being a poet were sort of two sides of the same coin, really. So I was a parish priest for uh, quite a few years, you know, about seven or eight years. And then um, I, I really felt that that I needed to start writing, that there was a literary side to me. And that also, the thing with being a parish priest is you're, you're kind of preaching to the converted, obviously. Everybody you know, who happens to rock right. up at church. Yeah. And that's very good and important. But I really liked talking to people who didn't share my beliefs, not because I wanted to ram the Bible down their throat or anything, but because I felt, let's find the common ground. Let's just see how this works. Let's see. I think everybody has soul. Everybody has a spiritual life, whether they talk about it or not. So um, so uh, towards the end of the 90s, um, I took up a post as a, as a chaplain, uh, first at, at a university called Anglia Ruskin and then at Cambridge University at Girton College. And, um, and uh, I've been doing that for the last, uh, you know, uh, 20 years or so. Uh, and, um, you know, that's a fantastic privilege, you know. I, the classic thing will be, you know, I, obviously I ran all the services in the chapel and we had beautiful music. I did all of that. But the main part of it was just being there, doing my own writing and research, but always with an open door. And any of the kids could come in and just talk about the, anything they liked. 
And obviously I looked after them as they're going through crises and things pastorally. Right. But quite often they just walk through the door and go like, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if I should even be here. I'm not religious. But, but. you know, <laughs> and it was always interesting what happened after but, you know. So, uh, so yeah, that's been a fantastic uh, experience for me. And I hope I've been helpful. My chaplain was very helpful to me and helped me become a Christian when I was a student. So I kind of understood and venerated that role. And um, and I hope I've been helpful to, to uh, a few generations of these very bright young things. Um, but, you know, it's quite tough for them at Cambridge because they're all really good, obviously, to get there. Mm -hmm. But what, what the situation is that probably in their own school or their own class, they have without effort been, as we would say, top of the form. Do you know what I mean? They've, yeah. they've always been the best. But they're not going to be the best in Cambridge because, you know, so they really have to recalibrate, rethink and start working. And that's quite a big adjustment for some of them. So you can sort of help them through that. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk music, pipe smoking and more with uh, with the Reverend Dr. Malcolm. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. For over 150 years, Peterson has welcomed all pipe smokers. It's the preferred choice of the thinking man and the everyman alike, and our workshop too is a place of hospitality and warmth. Hi, I'm Glenn Whelan, and for me, Peterson is a family tradition I've known since my childhood. My dad, Tony Whelan Jr., worked at Peterson for 53 years, and has been my home since 2003. From sweeping our factory on a Saturday morning, to managing our store, to now steering our international distribution, I've seen the craftsmanship poured into each Peterson pipe. It lives in Jason's discerning eye as he handcrafts our silver accents and in Wojciech's able hands as he carves our rustications. It abides in Willie's grading and in Warren's papering. Peterson has welcomed us as contributors to its legacy. And it's a welcome we always extend to you. Cade Mila Folge, 100,000 welcomes, wherever you come from, whosoever you be. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit. And so I, I have to, I understand from your, from your history, the Lord of the Rings was important. I'm assuming yeah. you've probably read a little C.S. Lewis. Yes. It's very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, yeah, he's amazing. Cause of course, like a lot of people, I read the Nani books when I was a kid. I was yeah. absolutely enchanted with them. In fact, I carried on rereading them through, through my adult life. And then when I started studying English literature, of course, I discovered he was a fantastic literary critic and like wrote, in my opinion, the best book on Milton and the best introduction to medieval literature, all that stuff. So I, so he, he came into my life a second time helping me in my English studies. And then, of course, when I got much more serious about Christianity and began to study theology, wouldn't you know it? There's C.S. Lewis again, and he turns out <laughs> to be a brilliant theologian, you know. So he was great from that point of view. But, of course, Tolkien, once you've read The Lord of the Rings, you know, that is a beautiful world that you can inhabit at any time you like. Yeah. You know, you can just step into it and breathe its special atmosphere and be re your imagination is rekindled you're encouraged you know it's not a book although it's a fantasy book and some people would 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 some people would equate fantasy with escapism but i'm not sure that's quite right because i think what actually happens when you read the lord of the rings is you you're given a new world into in which you see people actually facing the struggles that you face the temptation to give up, the difficulties of making and keeping friendships, the question of overcoming barriers, the tenacity to keep going on the long slog. All those things are in there. And as you imaginatively do that, you know, with the hobbits against all odds, funnily enough, you find that when you come back into your own world, you've got a bit more gumption and a bit more oomph, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a great moment in The Lord of the Rings, you may remember when right towards the end when Sam and I don't really plot spoilers here, but you know, when no. Sam and Frodo are on their way to the rings of doom in Mordor and they're just at the absolute worst point And, you know, it looks like they're going to, they're going to be discovered and it looks like all their, all their efforts are in vain. Um, Sam encourages Frodo by making him think about all the great heroic tales that they've read, mm -hmm. the stories of Beren and Luthien and things like that. And he says, well, Mr. Frodo, maybe we're in a great tale and maybe this isn't the last chapter after all. Maybe there's something still to come. 
and it sort of encourages them to go on. So that's a unique moment where you're reading a story and the characters in the story are being encouraged and helped in their pilgrimage by the stories they've read. So it's natural for you to think, wow, I'm being encouraged in my journey by this story. <laughs> so I have to ask you, because if I, if I recall correctly, uh, both Tolkien and Lewis were Oxford men. Yeah. Uh, but yet you yeah. went to that other... Okay. That, I don't hold it against them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> both Oxford, students in Oxford refer to Cambridge as the other place, and yes. students in Cambridge refer to Oxford as the other place. <laughs> so I have to concede that they were from Oxford, although, of course, Lewis repented in the end, and I'm happy to say that Lewis ended his academic career as a professor <laughs> at Cambridge, and, and Cambridge created a special chair for him, the... Um, uh, the chair in medieval and renaissance literature no naturally we go back and forth but yeah. there's all kinds of chaffing between oxford and cambridge um one example of it just so you might enjoy so each of the universities have like a shield that, <coughs> that is their emblem <coughs> and it's printed on the back of the, the oxford university press or the cambridge university press and um the oxford shield which you'll see on any OUP book is a is a, an open book which has the the uh, the words Dominus Illuminatio Mea on it, which is a quotation in Latin from the Book of Psalms. It means the Lord is is my light. Um, uh, and the Cambridge book is a is a is a is a book, big fat book, but it's closed, right? So there's a nice story about an Oxford man, you know, meets a Cambridge man in a pub somewhere and decides to wind him up, and says, "Well, I think you can tell the entire difference between the two universities." just by looking at our two shield emblems. I mean, clearly our book is open because, you know, learning is an open book for us. And uh, and your book is closed, I'm afraid. You know, you're not really serious scholars. Yeah, it's a closed book. Learning is a closed book to you. <laughs> he thinks he's scored. So without missing a heartbeat, you know, sip from his pint, the Cambridge man says, well, I agree we should look at the emblems. But, you know, I've been looking at your emblem closely for many years. And I notice your book is always open at the same page. Ours is closed because we've read it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, one of the great rivalries. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, it's expressed every year in its most dramatic form in the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, which is not just something that the, that the, the alumni of Oxford and Cambridge delight in, but it's, it's a big national event. It's sort of like your, your Super Bowl. I mean, everybody stops yeah. everything and watches it. And it's a race on the River Thames. And, and there's tremendous rivalry in that. And suddenly you discover all the people in public life who are either Oxford or Cambridge. And there's a wonderful rivalry to it. And uh, it's a magnificent thing. I, I have to say my affiliation would go towards Oxford because uh, for two things. One, the Lord of the Rings. And two, I own a Mini Cooper and she was made in Oxford. So oh, right. I, I, oh, have, yeah. I have to pull for her hometown. But um, uh, yeah. So going back to pipe smoking, you mentioned three nuns. What were some of the earlier tobaccos that you smoked? Because, I mean, you've been smoking a pipe for a long time, and many of us time, never yeah, got... Yeah, I guess I started smoking my pipe in 76 or 77. So, uh, yeah, that is a good long... I can't do the math, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah well, there's the thing. Um, so three nuns... Um, there was a sort of, there was a darker sort of evening one, which was a kind of Balkan Sobrani, I mm -hmm. think, uh, a mix, which was good. And then um, once I sort of, you know, got back and more settled in England, there was a very, fine, well, there were a couple, there were in those days several good tobacconists in Cambridge. There was a chap, chap on King's Parade called Colin Lunn, and he used to do his own mixtures. Yeah, he had one called the Professor, which, if you had academic things, which was, uh, but these were English. These were English um, mixtures, so they're a lot. They weren't the sort of fragrant or aromatic American yeah. ones. I didn't discover those until I started coming over to America, and I liked some of those. But so these were were, uh, and then I discovered that Peterson um, did some of their own mixes. I don't know at what point it was that Peterson took over the Dunhill ones. You know the Dunhill ones. Yeah used to uh but but anyway i used to smoke um maybe it's first with dunhill but there was um the deluxe navy rolls uh-huh and i really liked that because i liked it you know when you open the tin everything they were all like little medallions of tightly tightly curled tobacco and that 
Those navy rolls are amazing. I think they have an aroma both before you smoke them and even while you're smoking. It's almost like sort of baking bread. There's something very sort of warm and wholesome and almost kind of yeasty about them. Um, oh. So uh, I like those. Then I discovered the American fragrance, and, and of course this this brings in the you know, the delicate aspect of married life. I mean, obviously, my wife knew when we, we met in '82 and got married in '84. Um, and she, so she already knew I was a pipe smoker. But once I discovered the, um, I think it was a uh, a black Cavendish. Well, I first had a Dutch one called Troost. Uh -huh. I smoked that a lot. And then I found an American one. I can't remember, you know, it was just the tobacconist had it in a jar sort of thing, which was um, basically a, a, a Cavendish, black Cavendish with ch cherry yeah. flavors. It was like a black cherry Cavendish. And, um, my wife found that really quite tolerable, even possibly <laughs> pleasant. So I now have a hut. I have a writing hut. So I tend to smoke the darker sort of more old-fashioned English mixes, including all kinds of ones like Kendall. Uh, there's a Kendall black oh, tobacco, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which you buy in sort of solid lumps. I mean, uh -huh. you know, if I'd shown it, to any of my hippie friends, they would have just assumed it was a lump of hashish. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you kind yeah. of cut it up and you kind of spend about three minutes breaking it up by hand before you can even put it. So I like, I have this pigtail, as well as called black pigtail. One of them. And um, I have those down in my heart. I don't smoke them in the house. Um, so right now I'm smoking a, a, a black cherry because I'm in my study here and um, so my wife doesn't... So even the the highly acclaimed good Reverend Doctor would abide by the uh, situation of a happy wife is a happy life. Oh, absolutely, uh, that goes without saying. <laughs> and um, you know, but I always think, I mean, it's arguable that even when people are smoking cigarettes and when they start, that, that that part of what is going on there, it's about a direction of nervous energy and physical energy, and it's about having something to do with your hands. But you get a really poor deal with a cigarette because you just light it and then it's done and then it's over and you haven't done anything with it. Whereas, I mean, <laughs> I know you're, this is just an audio one, but here am I, I'm constantly refilling and tamping my pipe and relighting it. So in terms of, um, I don't know if bang for your buck is the right phrase here, but, but you know, if part of the pleasure is not only the taste and the meditativeness, but also that sense of, you know, as we're having something to fiddle with, having this lovely tactile experience, then pipes are infinitely superior for, in that respect to either cigarettes or cigars. So I don't, I don't smoke cigarettes at all now, and I haven't done so for you know, forty years. But um, I do smoke cigars occasionally, and I, I, I love those and really enjoy. But they have the same sort of meditative savor. But my daily go-to thing is a pipe with a sort of lighter mixture um, in a, in the morning and a, and a kind of heavier one in the evening. Um, <coughs> when I was in America, I also <laughs> found the um, McClellan tobaccos, which are sadly oh, yeah. in demise. And somebody bought me uh, a tin of the Frogmorton that has that little whiskey stave yeah. kind of barrel inside it, or, you know, a little bit of wood inside it, sort of helping to flavor the whiskey. And I thought that was absolutely superb tobacco. I, I've sadly smoked the last of my last one now, and I understand it's irreplaceable. So it, I it, just have to live in memory. It is of uh, diminishing returns. Uh, is When you're writing, is the pipe a mandatory, uh, a mandatory companion to you? Yes, it is. And of course, I did, a, I did a huge amount of writing in lockdown. I just really got into it. And I wrote a big poetry sequence and a couple of other books. And that was, I think my wife was a little bit wary there because I was smoking far more than I would normally do. Yeah. Because for me, I don't know if it's a sort of Pavlovian association or if it's just the, the rhythms. Obviously, I'm a poet, so I'm working with rhythm anyway, if it's the meditative nature of it. I mean, the thing I always liked about Peterson, uh, I mean, I'm smoking a Sherlock Holmes Lestrade at the moment which actually looks quite like the pipe on the original Peterson's poster and logo back in the 1890s, where it was, which was that a chap, in fact, looking very much like a vicar with a pipe in his mouth. And it said their slogan, which I thought was brilliant, was the thinking man's pipe. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so yeah i it is it is very much woven into i there's something of the muse i think in my in my pipe and my pipe smoke so i do very much smoke when i'm writing so how does your because because if not being a if not being a poet and having a phd and all that isn't enough you're also an accomplished musician and a fan of bob dylan and leonard cohen yeah uh, how does that all come together? Well, I mean, I was a, I turned teen, as it were, in 69, I think. So basically, I was spent the early 70s, you know, when you're kind of listening to music and trying to define who you are and actually going out and buying albums. But not being a man of means, I, I tended to buy most of my albums in second hand, you know, mm -hmm. like shops or whatever and you'd, you'd take them out of the thing and look see if there are any scratches along yeah. the vinyl and you know how good it was so the albums i bought were kind of a few years older so literally the first long playing record i ever bought as a sort of 13 year old 14 year old was bob dylan's highway 61 revisited <laughs> and the second one was the songs of leonard cohen i don't i mean i'd almost say i haven't bought two better albums since yeah i mean you know um <laughs> I've still got them, you know, and I can still play them on vinyl, you know. Um, uh, so, so what I got, of course, from both of those guys was like poetry plus. I mean, I was already keen on poetry. I loved rhyme. I lo so these guys were complete masters of words and, and vocabulary. But then you had the additional lift of the music. And of course, with Dylan, you got the electric music as well. So it's kind of through Dylan, I then started listening to rock music of all kinds. And I was into the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all of that. But it actually um, uh, started off really with with um, that first Dylan album that I bought, which was Highway 61. And then I went back into his catalogue and one of the folk ones. And then I forward and then I bought everything, you know, what it I've been with Dylan through every stage and stuck with him. Every time he leaves everybody behind and does different, I thought, no, I trust you. There's going to be something in here. I can't, I mean, obviously there've been some albums are far better than others. And they've been, I don't think Dylan had a particularly good eighties though by way of compensation, the other, one of the other people I followed massively, who was Van Morrison, Van Morrison had a fantastic eighties and <laughs> some really good albums, you know? So, uh, but then, of course, Dylan recovered magnificently. I mean, towards the end of the 80s, you know, there was the Oh Mercy album, which was great. And then, you know, he's been producing some masterpieces. I mean, the late 90s album, Time Out of Mind. That's astonishing. I mean, um, songs like It's Not Dark Yet, uh, I think are just, just utterly brilliant. When he got the Nobel Prize, you know, there's all kinds of controversies about should he have got it because he's a songwriter and not a you know, proper poet, whatever. But I wrote a defense of that for our, the Church Times Journal here, for which I write a column, um, <clears throat> saying absolutely. And in fact, he wasn't the first songwriter to get it because Rabindrath Tagore, who was an Indian poet and also songwriter, also won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So so he's in, uh, Dylan's in good company there. Apparently they asked Leonard Cohen what he thought about Dylan getting the... Um, the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he said, "Well, it's really good." He said, "But you know, it's uh, it's kind of like pinning a medal on Mount Everest." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. I can't imagine Highway sixty one revisited being my first album and trying to find a try, trying to find something better than that going forward. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah for yeah. So, I mean, I think I ended up riding a Triumph motorcycle simply because the word Triumph was on the shirt that Dylan was wearing on the cover of that album. Yeah. Uh, and was that your inspiration to learn the guitar and to, and to play and perform? Yeah. yeah. You know, I got a guitar getting in my mid-teens. In those days, cheap guitars were really terrible. And nowadays, you can get a cheap guitar that's actually quite good, you know, because yeah. the computer cutting of... But in those days, it was like it was like trying to play one of those things that they have wires for cutting cheese with. I mean, <laughs> really hard to put that, you know, really high action and you know, having to kind of push your fingers down. But I discovered pretty quickly that you only need three or four chords and, um, you know, you could get there. 
Um, so I'm very much self-taught. I mean, I can do rather more than three or four chords now, but I, um, I, I really, uh, really enjoyed it. I also discovered that it was, uh, you know, it was obviously both good for making friends and f coming in and out of bands and, you know, and that interestingly, the girls seemed to like it as well. So, you know, there was lots to be said for playing the guitar in the 70s, that's for sure. I found that when I played the guitar, the girls didn't like it, so I put it down. <laughs> it worked out good <laughs> for me. Yeah. Uh, but um, no, no, and it, you know, and naturally, if you love hearing songs, there's going to be a time when you start trying to write them, it seems to me, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've always enjoyed that. I mean, it's been, in terms of, I mean, I'm, I make not all of, but a, a reasonable part of my living now as a poet in terms of getting the books out there and selling them. I'm, that's never happened, I have to say, with the music particularly. I've really enjoyed it and I play in pubs and, you know, I have stuff out on on iTunes and Spotify and it gets lots of listens. But Spotify, you'd need to have a million listens to buy a pint, you know. I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's there. It's not a main part of my income, but it is a part of who I am and I love doing it. And I have a sort of, um, well... Uh, sort of bar band i mean they're just a bunch of guys like me you know who have other day jobs but love classic british blues and love dylan and neil young and everything and so we play covers but we also play my stuff as well and the other guys in the band write as well sometimes so it actually um and i would say it keeps us out of mischief but it's not entirely true but uh <laughs> but it's um we don't play i mean we used to play at one point we were like the house band for a pub outside cambridge and we played you know weekly or sometimes fortnightly now because we're all scattered and doing other things we tend to get together for special occasions and we'll play maybe six or seven gigs a year something like that but it's it's good fun you know can we talk briefly before we finish up about the very sad day in british history where they banned smoking in the pubs Oh, yeah, that was a very sad day. Um, I mean, there was already a thing where there was a non-smoking room and a smoking room, and I thought that was quite sufficient, really. It's a pity because there's a kind of long history and tradition of the kind of fellowship. I think the kind of conversation you can have when you both got a pint and a pipe, it actually s slows you down. Mm -hmm. I think people have ended up drinking more and talking less when they haven't been able to smoke their pipes in pubs. So actually... From the health point of view, you know, it's maybe a bit of an ambivalent thing. It might may have been even something of a pyrrhic victory in the terms of a, those who'd like to look after our health on our behalf rather than leaving <laughs> us to decide it for ourselves. But um, the thing is, I think historically, I mean, obviously because I'm a huge fan of the Inklings, as they're called, which was yeah. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, but also the great um, writer Charles Williams and the linguistic philosopher Owen Barfield and various other academics, Williams, um, Lewis's brother, Warney, um, you know, um, various other, other Oxford figures. And they met in the Eagle and Child uh, in Oxford, which they nicknamed the Bird and Baby. And they had a little snug room at the back, which is called the Rabbit Room. And, um, you know, if there was ever a room you wanted to be a fly on the wall in, oh. it would be that one. And they were all smoking away and reading bits of their manuscripts to each other and talking of ideas, stimulating and challenging each other to write books, you know. And I just somehow feel that if it's just a bit harder to do that, particularly if you're a writer for whom the pipe is associated with the kind of flow of the creative juices, you know, I think we've really lost something. And I was very sad when that day came. Um, but uh, it is what it is. And, and uh, you know, uh, I totally understand why it came in as well. I mean, I take the dangers of passive smoking for people very seriously. And I don't think you should ever smoke in a place where there's anybody there who is uncomfortable with it. But my feeling was that it was should there should have been smoking rooms who could just go in. It made a big difference to the band, I have to say, because when we played, we, we've been playing in pubs quite a long time before the um, the, the rule came in. And I have to say, that was quite difficult when you were standing up, you weren't smoking, and everybody in the room was smoking. And as the, as the night wore on, and like, I'm taking deep breaths and singing, and it was cigarette smoke rather than fragrant pipe smoke. I have to say, it was a little bit easier to play when, and sing when, when it wasn't quite so smoky. Uh, 
Well, Doctor, the, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit, we will wrap this up with the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. And then at the end, we'll have a, we'll have, I'll, we're holding this for a very special end. So, Right, back has cool. So what is your favorite pipe? It's uh, the one I'm holding right now, which is a, a Peterson Sherlock Holmes Lestrade. It's just the right shape for my hand and you know curve of the stem for my mouth. It's, uh, it's, it's my go-to pipe. And what is your favorite tobacco? Ooh, difficult to say, but yeah. I'll probably go for Deluxe Navy Rolls, Peterson Deluxe Navy Rolls. What is your favorite drink? Uh, am I allowed more than one? Yeah. <laughs> I'll have um, a beer. Uh, a beer It's called Feakston's Old Peculiar. And it's a very dark ale brewed in Yorkshire with a huge amount of character and taste. Ooh. Feakston's Old Peculiar. And, uh, and being, a, being a fan of Yorkshire, I would imagine tea is also a favorite. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And Yorkshire tea is particularly good, I have to say. Yeah, I love Lewis's thing where he said, you can't get a, 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 a cup of tea large enough or a novel long enough for me. <laughs> uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Uh, book first, then music. I'm not really a film person at all. Yeah, I can't see you sitting in front of a movie. Unless yeah, it might yeah. be a Lord of the Rings movie, but... yeah. Yeah, I, I did enjoy those. Well, I enjoyed I enjoyed the um, the three Lord of the Rings ones. I thought the first one was the best. I wasn't. I thought the Hobbit was a bit of a disaster. It shouldn't have been spread over so many episodes. Yeah. Um, films, you know. Well, I think we may have similar thoughts, and uh, we we may be brothers from different mothers and different continents completely. Uh, and then finally, instead of a favorite pipe smoking related memory, you have a favorite poem of yours that relates to pipe smokers yeah. and if you would i'd be i'd be thrilled if you'd read it for us yeah. well this one's one my i know my fellow pipe smokers have enjoyed so i thought i might share it with you it's about the pleasure of that pipe at the end of the day when you've done everything and you're just in contemplative poetry mode it's called smoke rings from my pipe all the long day's weariness is done i'm free at last to do just as i will take out my pipe admire the setting sun Practice the art of simply sitting still. Thank God I have this briar bowl to fill. I leave the world with all its hopeless hype, its pressures and its ever-ringing till, and let them go in smoke rings from my pipe. The hustle and the bustle, these I shun. The tasks that trouble and the cares that kill. The false idea that there's a race to run. The pushing of that weary stone uphill. The wretched iPhones all insistent trill. Whingers and whiners, each with their own gripe. I pack them in tobacco leaves until they're blown away in smoke rings from my pipe. And then, at last, my real work has begun. My chance to chant to exercise the skill of summoning the muses one by one, to meet me in their temple, touch my quill. I have a pen, but quills are better still. And when the soul is full, the time is ripe. Kindle the fire of poetry that will breathe and expand like smoke rings from my pipe. Prince, I have done with grinding at the mill. These petty pelting tyrants aren't my type. So, Lift me up and set me on a hill, a free man blowing smoke rings from his pipe. Oh, absolutely wonderful. Again, go to, go to Malcolm's website find, and follow Malcolm on YouTube. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and thank you very much for coming on and doing this. My, my pleasure to be with you. I, I, look, I look forward to uh, seeing it all come out. And we'll be back in just a minute. Since its beginnings in 1876, Savinelli has become more than just a pipe factory. It's become a lifestyle. From sourcing the finest Mediterranean briar and partnering with local artisans to acquire unique accents, to expanding their catalog each year with new innovative series, Savinelli produces high quality Italian pipes that serve as a reflection of your individual tastes. With a portfolio that ranges from rugged designs fit for the outdoors, 
to elegant pieces destined for black tie galas. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And when I mean fascinating people, I mean Malcolm is fascinating people. Uh, you can check out everything he's doing on his uh, WordPress website. It's Malcolm, M-A-L-C-O-L-M, Geit, G-U-I-T-E, dot WordPress dot com. And on there you will find some lyrics to uh, songs and sonnets, including this little musical piece that we're going to listen to. It's uh, from Malcolm's album, Dancing Through the Fire, and this one's called The Messenger. I wish that I could see my love I'll be away so long I long to send my love to her So I'm sending you my song I am bound down on the highway But you can fly so free You can touch her in some dream Speak to her for me Should you find her in her garden In the fragrant evening air With beauty kindling in her eyes And soft light on her hair Then build for her an arbor set With flowers so frail and fair And tell her how she blessed me when We sat together there Fly out my song and find her Wherever she may be For if she hears you sing for her Perhaps she'll think of me Should you find her in the meadow By that still unhurried stream Tell her that I meet her there In every waking for there it was, she touched my eyes And gave them back their sight And showed the hedgerows and the fields All bathed in heaven's light There is still a path to find If you would take my part dream to cross, a word to speak that brings you to her heart. The road runs east of Eden, west of the setting sun. Should you find an entrance there, then song your work is done. Well, if you like that, and I did, you're going to get another Malcolm song next week, so slightly different style. You've got some mail. And as always, mailbag comments and questions can be emailed directly to me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, or you can post them on pipesmagazine.com under the radio show page, and I'll find them and read them there. Uh, and getting caught up uh, going back, apparently... Uh, so Church Warden from Watch City is a non-Virginia Perique blend. It's I'm guessing it's Burley's and uh, has a little bit of Latakia in it maybe. But the, that's from uh, Adam who pointed that out. So thank you, Adam. Uh, Kevin Foster writes, I'm a new pipe smoker around two years, and I'm wondering what you would personally consider to be a perfectly drilled pipe with regards to depth of the chamber as compared to the draft hole. I hope I can describe what I mean, but I've seen this done a couple different ways. One being the lowest, looking down into the bowl, surface of both the chamber and draft hole are even with each other, giving the appearance of a single roundish hole entering the side of the chamber at its lowest point. 
the other being the lowest point of the chamber being aligned with the center line of the draft hole drilling, giving the appearance of a narrow trough ending at the center of the bowl. Uh, I would imagine the difference I'm talking about here is pretty small. As long as the chamber isn't deeper than the draft hole or cattywampus in some other way, but I'm curious what you think. Uh, would your answer change bent versus straight pipe? Thanks in advance and cheers to the work uh, to your work on the show. I'm following your advice to keep up with the new releases and going back through in reverse order as I have time and I'm really enjoying the show, Kevin. Well, Kevin, you're listening to the show correctly. Um, so my answer is uh, both. Um, if you have the uh, if you have the bowl shape, the U-shaped bottom of the bowl, the one that the one that we've heard Jeff uh, Grasick talk about. On a straight pipe, you want it to come in and you want it to hit dead center bottom and you want it to look like it's part of the circle. You don't want to, you know, you want it, bottom of the draft hole should hit the bottom of the bowl, top of the draft hole should be up and to the side a little bit. Uh, if it's a bent pipe, uh, there's really, it's really hard. So you got to, you want to get it as, you want to get it to where that draft, that draft hole coming out of the bowl is pointing towards the center bottom of the pipe. But remember, you also don't want it. You don't want the pipe maker cutting that angle too severely because then you get that very thin spot and you might get burnout and you might get problems there. So, uh, in reality, you know, I think you're talking about, um, I think you're talking about millimeters of issues and maybe a little bit of extra tobacco. Uh, but you know, you really just don't want it up into the side somewhere, or you don't want a visible, you know, three, four millimeters above the bottom of the bowl. All right. Sound good. Okay. Uh, pastor Joda writes, uh, Brian, and this goes back, uh, to January, uh, Brian, on this week's episode, you and Fred were talking about the wood of the pipes radiating the heat and thereby cooling down the smoke. This makes me think about a question of physics. If the pipe is doing its job in radiating the heat, absorbing heat, and cooling down the smoke, would that mean that the pipe itself should actually be warm or hot in your hands? Is a cooler smoking pipe hotter in your hand, just thinking the heat has to go somewhere, and if it's being absorbed into the wood, then the wood should be increasing in temp. I'm no scientist, but that seems like how it would work based on the little bit of science I, uh, the little bit of science knowledge I have also a parenthetical. I just like to point out that I really appreciate the new ads. It's nice to have, it's nice to have a refresh in my ears. <laughs> Pastor Joda. Uh, well, Pastor Joda, thank you. Um, I had nothing to do with the ads, <laughs> but I can say, yeah, I think the pipe should be warmer in your hands. The bowl of the pipe should be warmer in your hands. If the bowl of the pipe is cool to your touch, uh, cool to touch, and then that means that that heat's staying in the tobacco chamber. And all right, one more from uh, Brian Wilson. Uh, I'm getting good vibrations. I'm sure he's tired of that by now. Uh, he says, hey, Brian, really enjoyed the interview with Fred Hanna. He's a wealth of information. And this, this goes back to January again. And I appreciated the more informal conversation between you two. Also, will you please ask Fred if there is any blend in the universe similar to Samovar? That's the one he developed. And, uh, that's the one he developed and McClellan blended. To me, there's no blend I've found that comes close to it. Best Brian. Yeah, I asked him, and he said he doesn't really know of anything that's close. Although he hasn't been poking around. So my suggestion is, anybody out there, uh, if you have a suggestion for Brian. Looking for something close to Samovar? Uh, let me know or post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on PipesMagazine.com. And in just a moment, rant time. There's nothing quite like a good book or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. Take a look at your pipe rack. Are all those briars and mirrors constant companions in your rotation? Or are there some that you gravitate to more than others? 
Are there some that you simply don't smoke anymore? Through SmokingPipes.com's estate trade program, you can transform those underused pipes into immediate cash or store credit. Just send us your pipes and we'll unpack, inspect, and evaluate them based on extensive market research and over 20 years of experience. Then we'll contact you with a detailed offer for your choice of cash or store credit, valid on any items in our vast selection of pipes, tobacco, cigars, and accessories. If you're not happy with our quote, we'll return your pipes free of charge to domestic addresses. It's that simple. Join the thousands of Smoking Pipes customers who have benefited from this program and start your trade today by contacting us at 888-366-0345. That's 888-366-0345. One of the big comments that we heard from uh, from with Mark was that he goes outside and smokes his pipe. And this is my reminder for you. Get outside. Smoke your pipe out in public. Let people see a tobacco pipe smoker in a public place. Let them know that we're not evil, hairy monsters. Let them know that we are people that have thoughts and feelings and let them know that we are uh, dignified people that like to enjoy smoking our pipe where we can uh, find yourself a uh, you know a patio of a coffee shop where they will allow you to smoke find yourself a uh, park bench in uh, out, out in front of a mall where you can where they can where you can smoke whatever it is just make sure that you're outside in public smoking it's now the uh, it's now march so spring is coming and this is just my annual reminder to everybody get outside and let them see you smoke answer questions about the pipe and tobacco if somebody looks at you greet them say how you doing start the conversation sometimes people are afraid to talk to other people so just reach out to them with you know conversation amongst people that's a skill that's um, nice to have and is a dying art so uh, maybe the pipe is a conversation starter so just make sure get out in public smoke your pipe support restaurants or uh, coffee shops or places that will provide you a place to sit and smoke Uh, even if it's a public park just get out there and do it and help support them they appreciate it we appreciate that they will allow us to smoke on outdoor places or indoor places you know get out there and smoke and you can support your local brick and mortar so there you go all right comments questions email me brian at pipesmagazine.com again jdrf auction items same thing give me an email and we'll start gathering those up in uh, april and may uh much appreciated to uh Thank you. Much appreciated. And thank you to Malcolm for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny It's very important you don't stink today. Hey, I make no guarantees.